0: Let us take up the cross till we the crown obtain. Lord, as we look at your word today, telling us to take up our cross and follow you, may you speak to our hearts and give us courage to walk that way. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I've got to be honest and say that I find it very difficult when I am confronted with a newborn baby, and the loving parents ask me, who does he look like? (laughs) Or who does she remind you of? And my honest and instinctive reaction when I look at most newborn babies is to say, well, looks a little bit like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, or (laughs) E.T. Other than my own grandchildren. They, they all look so strange. Uh, but of course, uh, I'd never say that. Pastry, that would be totally out of the order. So I, I try and judge which of the two adoring parents the baby looks the most like and make a choice, hoping against hope that I've made the right choice. Now, as they get past that very newborn stage, It's a lot easier to tell who they look like, uh, and even easier as they get older. In fact, I remember going into Woolworths. Do you remember Woolworths, all of you? Um, Going into Woolworths when our little son Luke, our big son Luke, was about eight or nine, and one of the ladies called over to a friend on the other counter, oh, isn't he just like his father? What a blessing for him. You want to know what God the Father is like, you look at the Son. You look at Jesus. You see, I have to admit that there's a bit of a problem when we come to talk about God. We can speak all about God. We can listen to what other people tell us God has told them to share. We can listen to the theologians who tell us about the attributes of God and thereby discover that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, transcendent, distinct from the world, eternal, outside of time. In fact, there are a great list of long words, and it's all fascinating, if not mind-boggling. But for most of us, it goes over the top of our heads. I've just got a new computer for my home office. And uh, it's a different type of computer to my previous one. And I'm struggling just a bit to sort out exactly how to work it. Now, part of the package is that you can go online, and it tells you exactly what to do. I've got to be honest and say it might as well be written in Chinese because I cannot work out what they're telling me to do. Their advice is totally incomprehensible. So I find it better to talk to Dan or to Tony or to Keena, who are all experts, my colleagues, and I say, will you show me, please? Because when somebody sits with me and actually shows me, sometimes at least... I begin to get the hang of it. I can almost hear Tony muttering (laughs) behind me about the number of times he's shown me the same thing and I've not quite got the hang of it. It's because he's not a very good teacher. (laughs) Well, uh, Jesus is the one who shows us shows us the love of God, shows us the heart of God, shows us the plan and the purpose of God, shows us how life can be lived properly, shows us exactly what the Father is like. Why? Because it says here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, God becomes visible in the notes we're using for the coming weeks fellowship groups a very helpful point is made here that because Jesus is made in the image of God in Jesus the work of God continues so that when Jesus stills the great storm on the lake of Galilee it's because his continuing work as Lord of creation is going forward When Jesus reaches out to engage with people, offering them peace or healing or faith, it's because he's continuing to express the loving will of the Father. (coughs) When Jesus reaches out towards the marginalized and the poor and the victims of injustice, it's because he's continuing the work of his Father, the God of justice, who in the law and the teaching of the prophets sought to protect the poor and the stranger and the weak. You see, because Jesus is the image of his Father, he does what his Father does. Now please carefully note here that it says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. I've got here in my hand an image of John Wesley. You may think I'm a bit of an anorak, but I collect old busts of John Wesley. In fact, when Biddy and I got engaged, I gave her a lovely Victorian engagement ring. She gave me the money to buy it, I have to admit, <laughs> because I'd spent all my savings in training to be a Methodist minister. So I gave that to her. She paid for it. And then she gave me a bust of John Wesley. What a lovely engagement present, a bigger one and a nicer one than this. But this bust is an image, just as any bust or statue is an image, or any painting or photograph is an image. But Jesus is not an image of God, someone made a bit like God, In God, Jesus expresses God... In Jesus, was God in God's fullness. Not an image of God, but the actual fullness of God. And that's where we differ from our Muslim friends. They revere Jesus as a great prophet. In fact, they even believe what a lot of Christians don't believe, that Jesus will one day come back as judge but they do not believe that Jesus was God. But a prophet can't save you. A prophet can't die in your place and open up the way to heaven. Only God can do that. And in Jesus, we see God and have God. The invisible and infinite God is very difficult for we finite human beings to understand. But, as it says in our study notes for the week, In Jesus, the invisible God becomes visible. Two more key verses and great ideas of this hymn of praise from the early church. The second part of verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, again, we need to be clear as to exactly what we're reading. The problem is here that we can read this and assume therefore that Jesus was the first person to be created but that's not so because Jesus was the co-creator we read in John's gospel he was with God in the beginning in more modern translations when all things began the word already was and the scholars tell us here that in both the Greek and the Hebrew the idea of firstborn doesn't relate to time, but to honor. Jesus is the preeminent one in all creation, worthy of all honor and praise and glory, the one to whom God's highest honor is given. And then the second big idea is in verse 17 In him all things hold together. That's a pretty big statement. In him all things hold together. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus was the agent of creation at the beginning of time. Jesus will be there at the end of time. And in the meantime, in the now time, it is Jesus who holds the world together. Nothing is excluded. All things are held together in him. And this means that the world is not in chaos, but within the plan and providence of God. This means that those things that we call scientific laws are, in fact, divine laws, each one an expression of the mind and will of God. And that is how and why we can live in this world and find it reliable and dependable. It is Jesus who keeps the world from chaos. But we also have to face up to the fact that if this Jesus, who is co-creator and sustainer of all that is, if he's worshipped for the beauty and the intricacy and the wonder of this world, all that's good and true and loving, then if, as it says here, all things... Are his responsibility, he must also take responsibility for the hate and division between individuals and nations, which we also uh, and also take responsibility for the spoiling of the creation for which he's responsible. As we see plastic clog our seas, logging decimate our forests and global warming, whatever its source, threaten us all. You see, the world is not as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit intended it to be. You and I are often not as creative and loving as we're intended to be as human beings. And so we have a problem. This wonderful hymn of praise in Colossians can only make sense, will only make sense, if in some way God does something about the way things are. And that leads us to our gospel reading from Mark chapter 8 and verses 31 to 38. You see, Jesus knew that things were not right in this world of ours, and that's why he came to take responsibility for the way things were, whatever that took. And as we read this, we begin to understand that Jesus knew exactly what it would take to put things right. For the Jesus who had made the world is the Jesus who comes to redeem the world. Verse 31 here. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Was there no other way? Wouldn't modeling, loving humanity do? Wouldn't his teaching do? Wouldn't meeting people in love and healing do? Wouldn't miracles do? No, they wouldn't do. Jesus needed to step into this brokenness himself, experience the hate and rejection himself, suffer the pain himself, enter the darkness of the absence of the Father himself, Submit to the blackness of the sealed tomb himself. There was no other way. And Peter can't understand it. He can't even face it. Verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I went to visit an old lady of 101 just after Christmas. She was my late mother's best friend. And I took her some flowers and a calendar of lovely pictures of the countryside with verses of hymns and Bible verses on it. And as I left, she knew we were going away for a month, she said, I don't expect I'll ever see you again. Of course you will, I said. I bought you a calendar, so you need to get good value out of it. <laughs> well, I did see her again this week. And she is still with us. She's used two months of a calendar at least. But as I thought about that visit, I realized, that in fact, she was speaking more truth than I was. I didn't want to face up to the possibility of losing one of the last links with my mother. And she was someone who's been there throughout my life i was the one who was not being real well jesus is the one who's being real here and when peter tries to dissuade him this jesus who we always portray as being so loving and so sensitive has in fact harsh words for peter Verse 33 here. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, it was so very important that Peter and the disciples understood. For Jesus knew that not only was he going to walk the way of suffering and death, but these disciples would walk that same way as well. They thought that the way of Jesus would be a way of triumph, but it was a way of defeat. They thought it would lead to dominion over others, but it led to them being the servant of all. They thought that they would be on the winning side, but so often... They were on the losing side. And Jesus, as Jesus says here in verse 34, speaking to them 2,000 years ago, but speaking to me this morning and speaking to you this morning, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the co-creator, the sustainer of all that is, walked the way of the cross because he knew it was the only way to begin the restoration of his world to all that it was meant to be. And this Jesus calls us now Me, you, today, to walk the same way. Let's pray together.